Welcome to the serialized audiobook of Title Fight, Season 2 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Title Fight is also available as an ebook and as an ad free, unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash titlefight. Hello, this is Scott Sigler, the author of the Galactic Football League series. Give me a couple of seconds to set the stage before we get in the ring, and I deliver a flurry of lefts and rights followed by the triangle choke that is Title Fight. Title Fight is a novella that runs for 10 episodes. It takes place between the novels The Rookie, which is season one of the GFL podcast series, and The Starter, which is season three. Where The Rookie and The Starter have American football as a backdrop, Title Fight has mixed martial arts as a backdrop. You do not need to know or even like mixed martial arts to enjoy Title Fight. It is a very character-driven story. I co-wrote this story with author, screenwriter, and podcaster Matt Wallace, a former professional wrestler and self-defense instructor and an all-around awesome dude. I hope you enjoy Title Fight, and I know you will enjoy seeing the characters from this story as they appear later on in the Galactic Football League series and the references to Title Fight that you will hear in Season 3, The Starter. Now, let's get ready to rumble! Round 1. Korak the Cutter. 60 seconds. The round-ending bell sounded three times, but you could only hear the first string before the crowd's bloodlust roar shook the arena. The capacity crowd of 10,000 business beings, military officers, elected officials, socialites, and media stars, the upper crust, the elite, society's elegant ruling class, all reduced to snarling, stomping, spitting, cheering, appendage-pumping primitives calling for blood, blood, and more blood. They had almost witnessed history. They had almost seen a first-round tap-out of the most dangerous sentient in the galaxy. They had almost witnessed the defeat of the undefeated, the toppling of the reigning heavyweight champion. That champion, Korak the Cutter, had been drawing roars like that for almost two decades. And not just from his same species, Quith, all three castes, the leaders, warriors, and the workers, but also from humans, Sklorno, Ki, Hurrah, Lee Ki, and basically any sentient capable of watching one being destroy another under the octagon's glaring spotlight. Before the last bell ring even sounded, Korak's corner throne was already descending to the canvas. Spotlights tracked the metal chair, the members of his corner team that rode down with it, and the racks of equipment bolted to the back and sides, all decorated in glossy black and yellow enamel. Korak stumbled away from the octagon center, his limp right arm leaving a trail of red blood that blended with the marks left by the undercard bouts, stringy bits of green flesh from another quith warrior, human blood, which was just as red as that of the quiff, and the oily black streaks from the key cruiserweight that had died earlier in the evening. Three beings rode down with the rack, all ready to do their specific tasks. 
they wore clothes of black and yellow silk, Corax colors. The team had only 60 seconds to patch up the Galactic Heavyweight Champion as best they could and send him back into the octagon for round two. Timmy McMurphy, electrical and armor, rode down holding a thin, flexible, half-meter snake probe in each hand. Korak turned and started to sit even before the throne finished lowering. Timmy expertly slid the crystal probes into titanium sockets embedded on either side of Korak's spinal column, just below the upper shoulders that anchored his smaller upper arms. As the throne clanged to a stop at its lowest position and Korak's butt landed in the heated seat, the filaments ratcheted home with a click. McMurphy tapped the left side of his head. Multiple holos flared to life just in front of his eyes, tiny to the rest of the arena, but so close to him they took up all of his vision. He flicked his eyes and blinked like a man with a nervous twitch and a guilty conscience, eye-track maneuvering through the diagnostics and subroutines. Doc Patak came down with the throne, as the rules dictated, but he didn't actually need to ride it. Once the throne locked into place, Doc Patak fluttered off the pulse control deck on the right side, his stingray-like wings wafting through the air, his coarse black skin rippling from the sonic energy of the still-screaming crowd. He carried a floppy biochem clamp in the long flaps that extended from either side of his mouth, the hurrah equivalent of hands. He wrapped the clamp around the champ's thorax. The clamp expanded and tightened, almost a living thing itself, auto-positioning systems adjusting delicate machines directly over IFA-approved sensors long since embedded in Korak's vital organs and nerve clusters. As each system found its proper biological interface point, light shifted from green to red. Out of the 15 lights, 13 lit green within two seconds. Two flashed orange. Doc Patel would get to those if he could, but first he had to stop the leg bleeding and work on that limp arm. 50 seconds. The third crew member was the being in charge of them all, the being that had made Korak a violent machine, the mixed martial arts heavyweight champion of the Intergalactic Fighting Association, which was the same thing as saying that Korak was the most dangerous sentient in the galaxy. Vicor the Black hopped off the throne's right side, his little quith leader feet landing lightly on the blood-streaked octagon canvas. Vicor and Korak had similar body structures. Not surprising, considering they were members of the same species. Technically, anyway. Vicor stood all of three foot four. Patchy black fur streaked with gray covered thin legs, a narrow thorax that supported two middle arms, and a head that featured one large, clear eye. Twig-like pedipalp arms hung from the sides of the head, just below the eye. So Vicor sort of looked like Korak, save that Korak stood at around six foot ten and weighed five times as much as his longtime manager. Korak, of course, had no fur. Instead, he had thick chitin decorated with enamel tattoos showing a history of military service and the names of the five beings he'd killed in the ring. His chitin also showed numerous spiderweb lines from healed cracks and the thin, straight scars of protein welds. Too many of those, truth be told, but he knew no other life, nor did he want one. Vicor was standing. Korak was sitting, yet still the massive quith warrior had to bend his head down to stare his manager in the eye, 
But Korak only looked into that eye in flicks and blinks because he kept looking past his manager, staring across the ring, staring at a smiling Mark the Mangler Wheeler. Mark Wheeler, whose ring team was trying to jam his broken index finger back into place and skin-weld his dangling ear back on. Mark Wheeler, the number one contender for Korak's IFA heavyweight title. Mark Wheeler, who had broken Korak's right middle arm. Mark Wheeler, who wasn't getting out of this octagon alive. How's your arm? Vicor asked. Broken, Korak said calmly. I had to let him break it to slip out of the Kimura. He had it on tight. You got sloppy, Vicor said. You let him catch you. Doc, what's the damage? Doc Patai didn't bother looking up. One mouth flap shot into his black and yellow backpack. The backpack stored all of Patai's equipment, save for the serious rack gear needed to save a life. It also housed the speaker film that translated his soft hisses and breaths into standard English. Doc's right mouth flap came out of the backpack, holding a blue ball that he jammed into the bleeding hole in Korak's leg. The ball instantly molded itself to the hole, pushing in, stopping the blood flow, and dumping millions of nanomeds underneath the broken chitin. Pata's other mouth flap slid a sonic scalpel down Korak's right middle forearm slicing open the adamantium-embedded carapace. Red blood poured onto the canvas like a child's melted strawberry milkshake casually tipping over and dumping onto the kitchen floor. Doc's mouth flaps flashed up again into the backpack, stashing the sonic scalpel and coming out with shiny metal clamps. He fastened them home inside the open forearm in a flurry of practice motions, quickly stemming the steady flow of blood. Well, young Quentin, you must really learn to control such things. The brake split a nerve cluster and tore an artery, Doc said. Vicor leaned to his left, peeking into the open arm. Can you fix it in time? Would I have opened it up if I could not, Doc said. You worry about getting him to stop being stupid out there. I'll worry about the arm. Timmy, shut off electrical to the right arm. I'm going in. And while you're at it, jack him in with two liters. Got it, Timmy screamed. 40 seconds. Timmy's eyes blinked rapidly as his focal point shot through the menus, turning off the nervous system in Korak's broken arm. Electrical pause! Jacking in now! Timmy talked far louder than necessary most of the time, and during a fight, he had absolutely zero volume control. Timmy hailed from Earth, from a place called New Jersey, where apparently being loud was part of the culture. The little human reached into one of the black and yellow equipment racks, pulling out a long needle pump connected to a thin hose. He raised the needle with both hands, pointed it down, then jabbed it into the base of Korak's head, where it clicked home into yet another recessed artificial jack. To the neophyte fight fan, or the untrained observer, Timmy's action seemed brutal, but he was the best electrical and jack man in the business. Five fights back, in a title defense against Hitzelapakle, Timmy had completely replaced Korak's blood supply between the third and fourth rounds, and had done it with such natural expertise that the fighter hadn't even blacked out for a second. The clear tube filled with red as Timmy pumped fresh blood into the champ's body. Korak was used to pain. He barely noticed the needle. His world narrowed to two things. 
that smart-ass smile on Wheeler's bloody face and Vicor's look of concern. Vicor never looked concerned. Perhaps he had been hoping Timmy and Doc Patel would find something seriously wrong with Korak, something to explain how the Mangler almost tore the champ's arm right off the thorax, something other than what Vicor had to suspect, that Korak had lost a step. Vicor stared into Korak's single eye, an eye heavily protected by ridges of cracked-lined chitin. The days of speaking with urgency, of pep talks, of motivation, those had all faded away some 10 or 11 fights ago. Even with blood spilling down from the corner throne, Vicor and Korak talked in calm, conversational tones. They were both the grand old men of the fight game, and as much as they lived and breathed the sport, they'd been to this dance before. Educate me, the manager said. Explain how that two-bit outer system Golden Gloves runner-up chump managed to get you in a Kimura. 30 seconds. Korak's vision remained trained above Vicor's head, remained locked eye to eyes with his thick-bodied, tanned, heavy G opponent. Wheeler's ring crew, dressed in red and white silk, worked to simultaneously bind the finger's blood-gushing ear, reduce the swelling under his left eye, and tape his broken finger in place. The corner dock had Wheeler's hand pinched between his thighs and was jabbing away with a bone stapler. Wheeler's head stayed rock still, as if he didn't even notice the work on his body. He stared at Korak with an emotion that seemed uniquely human. All species had facial and body expressions that showed fear, hatred, anger, pain. But only a human face could show such arrogance. He caught me, Korak said. I don't know how. I saw it coming and I moved to counter, but I didn't get it in time. A touch of translucent black washed across Vicor's eye, and then it was gone. The reaction confirmed that Korak had properly guessed his longtime manager's suspicion. Fighting is about a lot of things. Skill, viciousness, strength. But above all, fighting is about speed. Korak had seen the Kimura coming. He just hadn't been fast enough to stop it. The champ had been the champ for 17 straight fights. Two, maybe three fights a year for the last seven years. That was a long time in the fight game, the longest run since the IFA had started 250 years ago. But despite being a living legend, a first ballot Hall of Fame fighter, and the greatest champion of all time, Korak the Cutter was well past his prime. He was slowing down. Vicor again looked down at Patah. Talk to me, Doc. 20 seconds. Timmy, leg status, Patah said. Timmy blinked once and flicked his eyes right twice. Full blood flow restored to the right leg, Timmy said. Hundo heel! That phrase was music to Korak. Hundo heel, 100% repaired to a wound. Patah fluttered up and forward so he could speak into the chitin-armored ear pits under Korak's eye. Patah's long mouth flaps kept working on Korak's arm. Champ, you have to keep him off this arm for a bit, Doc said. It's okay for now, but I need to realign the nerve clusters after the next round. It's going to hurt like hell while the nanocytes patch up the arteries. Keep him off for 30 seconds and you should be fine. 15 seconds. Timmy, finish up! Vicor shouted. Almost go! Timmy screamed. 
bioelectric is A-OK. -okay. Get out of there, Doc. I need 10 seconds to return that arm to normal function. Clearing out, Doc said. His mouth flaps pulled out all the clamps and blockers in a practiced, smooth motion, stuffing each one into the backpack that would automatically clean and sterilize them, prep them for the next round. Clear. Go electrical. Doc pushed the split chitin back together and started fusing it with a protein welder as Timmy blinked furiously, dancing his way through hundreds of biosensors and controllers embedded in the champ's body. Ten seconds. Waves of black, not even all that translucent anymore, washed across Vicor's big eye. That kind of emotional display just wasn't like him. No matter what, that eye always seemed to stay clear. He's gonna come after that arm, the little quith leader said. You have to keep it back. Keep him at bay with left jabs. Do not go to the ground, you understand? I don't care who you are, no one can handle another Kimura on a broken arm. The human is too good on the ground. Make it out of the second round. We'll fix you up and you finish him in the third. Stick and move. Shuck that, Korak said. I don't dance. The human wants the arm, he can have it. Vicor's eye flooded black, so black you couldn't see inside of it. He started to say something, to berate this insolent warrior who would dare argue the orders of a leader, but the five-second warning buzzer blared through the arena. Timmy yanked out the blood injector and the crystal filaments. Red fluid flew everywhere, even splattering on spectators in the first and second rows. Doc hovered in place, wings rippling, as he scrambled to fuse the last edges of the chitin split. Vicor stepped out of the way and hopped on the left side of the yellow and black corner throne. Korak stood tall, 382 thick-limbed pounds of seasoned warrior marked by service enamels and a career's worth of cracks and welds. Korak the Cutter had been in danger many times, but Mark the Mangler Wheeler could very well kill him in the second round. Too young, too strong, too fast. Korak's undefeated MMA record of 45 wins, 30 by knockout or submission, 10 by decision, and 5 by death. His title, his life, it was all on the line. The bell sounded for the start of the round. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The two corner thrones, still dripping blood, rose up, carrying the corner crews 15 feet above the violent impressionistic masterpiece that was the octagon-stained canvas. With the ring clear of staff, the heavy key referee waved both fighters forward. The champion, Korak the Cutter, and the challenger, Mark the Mangler Wheeler, strode to the center of the octagon to make war. The Mangler was one of the best human fighters Korak had ever seen. Seven feet eight inches tall, 2% body fat, a lightning fast 450 pounds. His punches registered the highest pounds per square inch that had ever been recorded in the IFA for any species. Five years in, and the Mangler had just two losses against 18 wins, 12 by knockout, four by submission, and two by death. The Mangler had exceptional grappling skills, a fantastic knowledge of non-human anatomy, and his grounded pound skills could make a seasoned war vet wince. If Wheeler got you in a full mount, he finished you the hard way, with elbows so fast they looked like blurs even in super slow-mo holo replays. Both of the deaths, one against a human, one against a Sklorno, had come courtesy of those elbows. The Mangler was one of the best human fighters, which meant he really wasn't that good at all. Certainly not good enough to beat Korak the Cutter, and not good enough to take Korak's title. Young? Sure. Fast? Absolutely. Strong? Far stronger than Korak. Experienced? Not enough. And that would be the difference. The Mangler knew he'd broken Korak's arm, messed it up bad, and the human would also know there hadn't been enough time to fix it properly. He would come after it. Korak could keep him at bay with left jabs, buy time while the nanosite stitched up the internal damage, but the judges didn't like that backpedaling, stick-and-move garbage. Korak stumbled coming out of his corner. He heard the crowd's quick murmur. They had seen that stumble. If they had, so had the mangler. So had his corner. That left only one question. Was the human inexperienced enough dumb enough to believe it. 450 pounds of human physical perfection shot across the ring. Caution forgotten, mouthpiece bared, and wide eyes filled with a hunger for intergalactic glory. Yep, he was that dumb. Korak threw a sharp middle left-hand jab. The mangler was coming in too fast, and the punch caught him on the right eyebrow, instantly opening up a fresh cut. Despite the cut, Wheeler kept coming, taking the blow like it was a free ticket to get front row seats at the main event. Korak stepped back again and threw the same left-hand jab. Threw it a little slower, wondering if the human would still not see the ruse. The mangler ducked this jab, bent his knees to drop his level, then grabbed for Korak's middle right wrist. Here was where the split-second dance of chess elevated to the level of the masters. 
Korak made it look like he was pulling the middle right hand away, but too slow, his punch-drunk lethargy making him groggy, weak. The mangler reached in, reached down for the wrist. He was a disciplined fighter, a skilled fighter, but Korak had learned something in the last seven years. The lust for the title, the glare of the golden belt, it can make an opponent overeager. Not much. These are the best fighters in the galaxy, after all. But when you're facing the champ, it doesn't take much to shuck up royally. Korak's dance began. Offer the sacrifice. Step back. Lure the opponent in. Wheeler's ham-hock hands locked down on Korak's right wrist. The champ stepped forward with his left foot as he turned his right shoulder back, seeming to pull his right wrist away from the aggressor. The mangler had no problem with the evasive move, taking an extra half-step forward to compensate. He closed in with his chin down tight against his chest, raw fury and youthful skill pouring off of him like the sweat dripping off his tanned skin. Offer the sacrifice. Step back. Lure the opponent in. Turn shoulders. Make opponent turn to match. The sacrifice had been offered and taken. Wheeler's carbon-to-diamond grip squeezed tight. Now Korak could not pull away even if he wanted to. But the champ just wanted to turn to put his back to the ref. So the ref couldn't see what came next. Heavy key refs were the only sentience that could work a heavyweight MMA fight. Heavyweights were among the strongest beings in the galaxy, and they were trained to break joints, cut off airflow, pulverize nerve clusters, and... If those things didn't work, use fists to turn flesh or chitin or pebble armor into a broken stew of protein and calcium. Outside of the octagon, MMA fighters could be polite or obnoxious, professional or arrogant, quiet or loud. But inside the octagon, at this level, they all wanted the same thing. They wanted to destroy. If you were going to pull one berserk 450-pound killing machine off of another, that wasn't exactly a job for the delicate hurrah refs of the GFL. You needed strength. You needed mass. And having an extra set of muscle-bound arms didn't hurt either. Hence, 700-pound heavy key got all the primetime officiating gigs. With their size and strength, it was a damn good thing they were too slow to make good fighters. Speed. Fighting always comes back to speed. But speed is only half of a fighter's ability to land blows. The other half is timing. With 17 years of professional fighting under his belt, timing was something ingrained in Korak's soul and in every atom of his body. Offer the sacrifice. Step back. Lure opponent in. Turn shoulders. Make opponent turn to match. Back to ref. Then... With his smaller upper right arm, Korak drove an uppercut into Wheeler's jaw. The upper arms couldn't really hurt Wheeler's massive jaw or huge neck, but they could make the human move a little. The perfectly placed punch drove up under the point of Wheeler's jaw, forcing his chin up and away from the chest for a fraction of a second. Offer the sacrifice. Step back. Lure the opponent in. Turn shoulders. Make opponent turn to match. Back to ref. Small arm uppercut, opponent's chin comes up, and finally, the rabbit punch. 
Korak didn't know what a rabbit was, and he didn't care. It was some obscure human reference describing a blow to the back of a human head, where it connected to the spine. A punch there was just as illegal as hitting a quith warrior in the nerve cluster that controlled all four arms, just as illegal as backfolding a sclorno. That's why this dance wasn't just about landing the punch. The follow-through had to be right, or IFA administrators would disqualify Korak in the post-fight Ola reviews. Korak and Wheeler turned just as Korak threw the short upward hook to the back of the mangler's head. The hard chitin fist landed dead on, just under the left rear ridge of skull, driving in the neck muscles as dense as hardwood. Korak put everything he had into the blow, a blow that would have instantly snapped the neck of a normal human. The mangler, of course, was far from normal, but he also wasn't made of metal. He was flesh and blood, and every anatomy has certain limits. Their turn continued. Wheeler's hand spasmed, his grip loosened. In a fraction of a second, Korak reversed it, his three-fingered hand rotating outward, fingers extending, the movement forcing the mangler's hand backward until he lost the grip on Korak's wrist. Korak continued the outward turn until his fingers locked down on Wheeler's now upturned wrist. The grab, then the pull, keeping the spin going. Wheeler stumbled forward as Korak hopped onto the human's broad back. All of this as the rabbit punch skidded across the back of Wheeler's head, Korak's middle right fist sliding around under Wheeler's jaw across the throat. The inside of Korak's elbow met Wheeler's Adam's elbow, and Korak's arm tightened, all sides pressing in on Wheeler's neck, cutting off blood, cutting off air. Finally, his two smaller upper arms locked onto his lower right, wrapping Wheeler's head and throat into a python-tight chitin cage. The challenger planted his feet and tried to turn in. He'd already recovered from the rabbit punch. In fact, it had only stunned him for maybe half a second. But by that time, Korak had mounted the challenger's back, the chokehold locked firmly around the human's neck. Locked in deep. Korak's legs sank around Wheeler's front, three-toed feet locking tight on his abdomen, digging in and constricting the diaphragm. The crowd's roar hit like the slap of a god. Louder than most battles Korak had fought in, and yet the noise in both the octagon and in war meant the same thing. The sound of blood. Wheeler tried to stay standing, tried to balance 400 pounds of Quith Warrior on his back because he knew that to fall now meant submission, it meant a loss. Korak's inner thighs squeezed down on Wheeler's hips, his arms cinched even tighter. Pushing down with his legs and pulling up with his arms, Korak focused all of his strength on snapping the arrogant human's neck. The crowd roared so loud, Korak almost couldn't hear the human's pitiful choking noises. Enough, Vikor said. Everyone out! Key security guards started pushing out the media and the celebrities who'd crowded into Korak's dressing room. Mumbles of complaint went ignored, and in seconds, the crowd control expert swept everyone through the door, leaving Vikor alone with his fighter. Still undefeated, still the champ. Good thing Wheeler tapped out standing up, Vikor said. It looked like you might break his neck. I was trying to. What do you mean you were trying to? 
I wanted to kill him, Korak said. Kill him, like I did with Khalid two years ago. I pulled Wheeler's head as hard as I could. His neck should have snapped, but it didn't. Vicor looked at him for a long time. The locker room hung heavy with silence. I think it's time, the leader said. Time to go do my post-fight interview? No, champ. I think it's time to... I know what time you think it is, Korak snapped. It's not time. Vicor's eye flooded black. It was just the two of them now. They'd been together too long for the manager to try and hide his emotions. You slowed down, champ. And it's not just that. You're getting weaker. You took Wheeler's back. I don't care how big he is. If you can't break a human's neck when you've got him all locked in like that, well, you know what that means. Korak did know what it meant. It meant that not only had he lost speed, he'd lost strength. And when a Quith warrior starts to lose strength, the grave isn't far away. You have been listening to Title Fight, Season 2 of the Galactic Football League series. Written and performed by Scott Sigler. Produced by Ariok Morningstar, with post-production by Steve Rickyberg. For more information on Scott and more free stories, go to scottsigler.com. Theme music is the song The Kids Are Coming For You by the band Superweapon. Superweaponband.com. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.